On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Slobodan Stojanovic about testable serverless applications. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 10. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Slobodan Stojanovic. Hey, Slobodan. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So you're the CTO at Cloud Horizon and Vacation Tracker. So why don't you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and what these two companies do? Yep. Um, so for last seven years, I'm a partner and the CTO of Cloud Horizon. We basically do services uh, for companies and we uh, build web applications for them. Uh, we worked with startups and some enterprise companies and things like that. For a long time, we thought about like building a product. So last year, we finally uh, started doing that and we built a small uh, tool that will help us to... Uh, so uh, whenever our... We have like almost 30 people in the company and it's really hard for us now to track who is on a leave and who will be on a leave at some point. So we build a tool to help us out to, to track just that. We don't need the full HR system and things like that. So we use serverless to build vacation tracker, our product, which is basically a Slack bot and now web application that will help you to uh, manage leaves for your company in just a few clicks and people can request leaves uh, through Slack, uh, Slack and things like that. Beside that, I'm I'm writing a lot about serverless, uh, not that lot uh, in last uh, couple of weeks, but uh, before that, I, I wrote a book about serverless called the serverless application with the uh, Node.js with my friend Alexander Simovich. And I have a couple of uh, Medium posts and a few other articles that are explaining mostly testing and architecture of serverless apps. So that's, that's it, basically. Awesome. All right, so I wanted to talk about testing in serverless applications. And so uh, maybe for people who uh, are either new to development or you know, are maybe used to maybe different, different ways of, of testing. I mean, wh why is testing so important? Let's maybe start with that. Um, Probably the best example I, I saw so far the, the, is the story, uh, one of the stories from uh, the previous book from Goiko Adjic called uh, Humans versus Computers. So there was a guy somewhere in, I think, US that uh, wanted to have a custom plate for uh, his car. And he tried to fill the form. And uh, he was into sales and boats and things like that. So uh, he had the uh, three choices in that form. First one was like boat. Second one was sailing. And he didn't want the third choice. So he tried to leave it empty. He wa uh, wasn't able to do that. So he typed like no plates or something like that. The first one was occupied. The second one was occupied. So he got the no plates plates. That was fun. So he kept them. And after a month, he started receiving a lot of tickets for parking because, you know, uh, in the software for uh, guys that are like filling the tickets for parking, uh, no one predicted that, uh, that there will be a guy with no custom plates or without plates. And whenever they didn't have the plates, they just type something. And most of the time they type like no plates, plates. <laughs> so with testing, uh, they would probably handle that, <laughs> that thing much before uh, it hit the production and everything. So our applications are not perfect. There are so many things that... Uh, when people start using that, uh, that can do in our applications. And when we start testing, first, we, we do some analytics of our application and think about uh, the end users and the way that they will uh, test our application. And on the other side, when our application grow uh, really big, it's easier for us to like be sure that we didn't break something 
uh, unless we wanted to break it, of course. Right. And when and when people are building applications, too, I mean, this is something where I mean, I'm a big fan of test driven development, uh, where you you actually write your tests first uh, and then you write code to make the tests pass. Right. Because then you know what the expected outcomes are, uh, as opposed to, you know, kind of going back after the fact and, and trying to, to make some changes there. Um, so, so let's let's talk about testing uh, with serverless, right? Let's get let's get a little bit specific. So, is there or are there different things that you need to do, or sort of what's different about testing serverless versus maybe testing a traditional monolithic application? So, the, there are a few different things, but uh, in general, testing is still the same. You want to check if your application works and the way that you want it to work. But some of the things are not your responsibility anymore. For example, infrastructure is like uh, responsi uh, responsibility of your vendor, uh, such as AWS or Microsoft or someone else. So there's no point in really testing that part because that's that's not really something that uh, they have their own tests and things like that. But you still need to be sure that your business logic is working in a way that it works. And also, all serverless applications are basically microservices. Uh, that are uh, working together. Most of the time you don't have one monolith application that is just uh, uploaded to AWS Lambda or something like that. Most of the time you have like many different functions. For example, in Vacation Tracker, we have, uh, I think more than 80 functions now that are working together. So it's really important to be sure that all those small services are working uh, together the way we want them to work together and that our end users have a decent experience and that they can use our application. Right, and so the the types of tests that you would run. I mean, you're still going to do unit testing, right? Yeah. So uh, basically, these types of testing uh, tests are not that different. Uh, we still want to have unit tests because they are still the fastest, uh, but we also want to have integration tests that are more important than ever because we want to to check if uh, all these things work in the integration, not just our. Uh, code with the database, but maybe two different Lambda functions that are talking uh, through some SNS topic or something like that. And of course, you want to, to have some kind of end-to-end -end tests and maybe UI tests if you have, uh, if your application uh, is heavily using UI and things like that. So you still want to keep all these different types of testing that, you, that we had in previous, like uh, uh, non-serverless applications. So the other thing I think that's important about UI tests and integration tests is with serverless, they're not quite as expensive as they were exactly. before, right? So yeah, uh, one of the things that I used to uh, kind of show, uh, show that is uh, testing pyramid. Uh, so testing pyramid was uh, defined by, uh, I think, Mike Cohn in his book, uh, Succeeding with Agile, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, probably much more than that, actually 10 years ago or something like that. Uh, so uh, he tried to explain uh, with the pyramid, uh, which tests are like the, the most important for your application. With traditional non-serverless applications, they're probably not traditional, but whatever, let's call them traditional just to illustrate the point. Uh, so you should have a lot of unit tests because they're fast. If you want to test your code, you don't need to spin up the database. You don't need to have uh, even the server or anything. You can just run them on your local machine and that's it. They're the fastest one. And of course, the cheapest one because you don't need the infrastructure for them. Then you need a service layer or integration test that will just test your code against the real database and some other things. And these uh, these tests are much slower because they, they require you to have the infrastructure. They have latency and many other things. 
and they're more expensive because you you need to have that infrastructure. And uh, in the past, the in infrastructure was really expensive for some applications, especially for big applications. I many times saw servers that are working just during the day for test environments and uh, dev environments, and they're shut down during the night and things uh, things like that. And it's even uh, more expensive and slow when you want to run end-to-end or UI tests because you you need to have everything uh, in some environment and then you need to simulate clicks and many other things. So you don't want to have, uh, those are the things on top of Pyramid that are most expensive and the slowest, so you don't want to have uh, a lot of them. And in serverless, uh, I want to, uh, I love to call that serverless uh, testing Pyramid. Uh, it's basically, uh, Still a pyramid, but more like Mayan pyramid without like a, a I don't know, a, it doesn't look like a, tri- a triangle anymore because unit tests are still the fastest one and the cheapest one. But then we have integration tests that are cheaper than ever and faster than ever because we can run them in parallel and uh, spinning up a new Lambda function or DynamoDB table don't take like minutes or it takes a few seconds or even less. And uh, you pay just for execution. so. It's really cheap for you. Most of the time, it will be free, so you can have more of them. And you need to check like integration between your services. That's why you want to have more of them. And finally, for end-to-end tests, again, it's cheaper and faster than ever because it's easy for you to spin up a new environment uh, that looks exactly like production where you want to test everything. But you can also do some uh, crazy things like putting your browser inside your Lambda function or something like that. And then you can, instead of running just uh, one uh, track of your UI test, you can uh, split them into like 10 different tracks and run in 10 different Lambda functions. And the cost will be the same because you pay per request. So it doesn't really, uh, so 10 requests that will be sequential will cost you uh, the same as 10 parallel requests. So. It's easier and faster. Yeah, yeah, it happens. It happens much faster. So you had mentioned too this idea of uh, of multiple environments, right? So that's actually another really cool thing that you can do in serverless, um, where you know each developer can have their own environment, uh, and if you wanted to just spin something up and do some manual tests or some even some integration tests uh, in in multiple environments, uh, it's it's a lot easier to do that with cloud than it than it was to do traditionally. Yeah, exactly. So especially when you're using serverless application and when you have uh, some kind of uh, infrastructure as a code, like CloudFormation or something else, Terraform and things like that, basically most of the time it's just one command uh, that will spin up you a new environment and it will take you like two, three minutes, maybe 10, but it's not like hours or days anymore. So it makes sense, uh, and you don't pay for environment that no one is using. So it makes sense for you to have like different environments for each developer, but also different environments for your manual testers. So every uh, person in your QA team can have their own environment, but also if you have a big feature that you want to test for a few weeks or something like that before you release it, you don't uh, you don't stop your uh, block your test environment. Instead, you can spin up a new environment and you can still have your test environment for some other smaller features that you want to ship in the meantime. All right, so are there certain things in serverless that you see um, need to be tested differently? Or maybe the question is, what is it that we're testing? You mentioned integration, because obviously you're you're hitting up maybe against a DynamoDB table or different you know, SQS queues or different SNS topics. Um, are there specific things that you would test um, in a serverless application that you wouldn't test maybe in a normal application? 
So it depends. You, you're testing things where uh, that you think can be risky. For example, when uh, I'm uh, in Claudia.js uh, core team, and uh, when my friend Goiko started Claudia.js, uh, it was early days of serverless. It was really hard to um, to start with serverless. Uh, so for for applic- serverless applications at that moment, you had like uh, 10 lines of Node.js code that will do something. And then like if you want to automate upload, it was like 200 lines of bash script that will do that. It was obvious that uh, risk part is not just in your code anymore. It's also in the process of uh, setup because you need to upload the code, which is not that uh, hard, but you need to set up all the permissions and do many different things to connect everything and to be sure that everything works uh, together as it should. So yeah, uh, risk is shifting from your code to different parts. And uh, I don't think you you should build your own uh, deployment library anymore because we have so many awesome libraries that are well-tested, but uh, you need to to use something that is really well-tested to deploy your uh, application. So you need to uh, be sure that your integrations are working fine, that your permissions are working fine, and many other things that, many other problems that you didn't have before, like microservices and serverless. And there are certain risks, of course, that you want to cover. Yeah, so let so let's. I want to talk about those risks, and actually, maybe this gets us into how do we actually test these applications. Um, but maybe we start first. I mean, and you mentioned deployment, uh, you know, deployment services or deployment uh, frameworks. I mean, obviously, Claudia JS is one serverless framework. Sam yeah, uh, for AWS. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them that are out there now. Architect framework. Uh, uh, there's a lot of them, and, and again, the preference for which one you choose is is based on a number of factors. Uh, but but maybe additional tools for actually doing the testing, right? We just use yeah. traditional Jest and Mocha and things like that, right? Yeah, for our applications, we mostly use Jest for writing tests. Uh, before that, we use Jasmine, but Mocha or anything else will work for JavaScript. It's the same for Python. You can just use, or any other language, you can just use the tools that you used before. And of course, if you want to run end-to-end tests and things like that, there are so many cool things uh, that you can use, such as Cypress, for example. It's really cool uh, because before that, uh, with Selenium, you that's basically another, uh, uh, I don't know, another set of skills that you need to have to run your end-to-end tests and things like that. Right now, you can do like uh, uh, testing, uh, and, uh, so end-to-end testing by just writing JavaScript, which is awesome for us because we our full stack is basically JavaScript now mm-hmm. with Node.js, some TypeScript, and many other things. Cool. So yeah, basically, there are some new tools that uh, can help you, such as... Uh, I don't know. Uh, there were a few. I, I don't know the names, but there are, uh, there were a the few like uh, testing and CI libraries uh, emerging with uh, serverless. But most of the time, you can just use your preferred tools, and uh, it will just work. Awesome. All right, so let's get into these risks, right? Because that's one of the things yeah. I think when you uh, when you're talking about testing or testing strategy, um, we need to know what to test, um, uh, and 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 that's a that's an important question. And and you 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 kind of use the word risks here, which I think is Perfect. It's a it's a it's a good word because again you have uh, you have liabilities, right? Every time we write a line of code, we have introduced some sort of technical debt or some sort of liability exactly. that we are now responsible for. Um, if that ever changes, that could break a whole bunch of things. So uh, maybe outline some of these risks that uh, you know, sort of as you see them. So yeah, um, 
in in our book, my friend Alexander come up with four uh, risks that, uh, and I really like that uh, explanation uh, and uh, like list of risks that that you need to cover. First one was configuration risk, uh, which is basically if you have the right permissions to do something and if your application is configured to to talk to the right database and things like that. Then you have technical workflow risk, which is basically if you're handling your errors correctly or if you're returning the correct uh, response to API Gateway or some other tool, uh, I don't know, tool that you're using or service that you're using. Then you have business logic risks, which is basically related to your code, if your code is working the way it should and things like that. And finally, you have some integration risks. Uh, with configuration, you configure the right services, but integration risks will tell you uh, and will cover the part of uh, uh, these services working together. So if your Lambda function are, is uh, writing the right way and uh, can talk to your DynamoDB in the right way and things like that. So in order to build a serverless application, in my opinion, uh, you need to consider all those four risks and to make sure that uh, that you're testing all of them. And some of them can be tested with like unit tests, uh, like, like part of business logic. And of course, um, things such as technical workflow risks and things like that. But for some of these things, such as configuration risks and uh, integration risks, uh, you need to have integration tests, of course. But sometimes you even need to have like end-to-end -end tests to be sure that uh, everything is working together fine and that your users will be able to use the application. Right. And, and actually, that's a, I mean, I think that's a really important point where, uh, you know, when we write traditional applications or, and again, I don't know if that's the right word to call them traditional applications, like you said, but, uh, you know, you usually have your databases set up for you. So you know what the, uh, you know what the URL of the database is and you know the username and password and so forth. But with infrastructure as code, we're spinning up you know, a separate database or a separate DynamoDB table for, um, you know, just for this dev environment or for this, you know, for developers, a uh, developer A's environment or whatever. Um, and so you run that risk of you spin something up and you might be able to access it locally because you have uh, a profile that you're running on with admin permissions or something. But then once the code starts to run, all of a sudden you can't access the database, right? Or you can't, um, you know, or or when when an error happens, um, you're not catching that error the same way in the cloud that you might be catching it locally or whatever. So you have all of these different risks. Um, so it is super important that you do spin up an environment to actually test it in the cloud. Um, otherwise you, you, could, uh, you could run into all kinds of problems like that. Yeah, of course. Um, I saw that so many times. Uh, sometimes you, you try to cut the corners and just deploy something to your test uh, environment and just see if everything works. And then you end up with like, uh, I don't know, digging through CloudWatch logs and many other things to, to, to be able to, to figure out what's, I don't know, what's failing and things like that. Right. But yeah, uh, you don't want to waste your time that way. Uh, you just want to, to be sure that things are working together in a way that they should. Yeah, and so when you're using when you're using um, things like DynamoDB or SNS or um, you know, and you're writing tests against those, what what's your strategy for doing that? I mean, are we using real? Uh, do we do we want to make sure we're always using real cloud versions of those? Do we want to mock those locally? Do we want to run local versions? How, how's your how do, how do you deal with that stuff? So in the early days when I started working with serverless, I tried to just do the things that I did with uh, non-serverless applications. So my first try was like to install DynamoDB locally and use it as a local database and 
test against it and things like that. But then there were so many different services such as like Cognito or uh, SNS or many other things that I can uh, cannot just install locally. So there are some things that can simulate them, but these are simulations. You don't want to run your tests against simulations because they will not give you the right results. Uh, and then the the second uh, my second try was basically to mock these things. Uh, so I tried to find some complex mocking libraries and things like that that will mock everything uh, and return the realistic uh, results and things like that. And even that is like leading to so many errors and some things are not mocked. You have some special things uh, in your code or you are using the old library, so you need to send some pull requests and who knows what. So these things uh, become more and more complex. And in the end, we just decided not to do that. Instead, we want to run our tests locally, unit tests mostly. And whenever we want to test, uh, to run integration tests, I want to test my code against uh, real DynamoDB, which is on AWS, or real SNS or real services that are on um, AWS and that are working in the cloud. So basically, yeah. And so what I do is um, in my in my local applications or my unit tests, uh, I, I do like to run mocks, but I hate those services that do the mocking for you. I mean, that, that like the, I think there's one like AWS mock service or something like that. Um, I actually just try to capture the actual um, response from the AWS event. And then I usually save that and use that as a way to quickly run unit tests. But then when you, and which is great for, you know, just running tests locally and try to figure out if you're, you're making some business logic happen, you don't want to have to always be calling SNS or DynamoDB um, in order to do that. Uh, but I do find that once you move past those and you go to the integration test, you do want to test it. But is this something where when you run the integration test, do you have to, do you have to test every single function or do we only just have to really make sure that we're able to connect to the services? Uh, yeah, that's a great question, and that leads us to, to another big topic, and this is architecture. Because you can try to uh, test everything against the real... Uh, so, for example, in our code, uh, in Vacation Tracker, I mentioned these 80 functions, and I think at least uh, half of these 80 functions are posting some uh, messages to SNS. If I try to test every of these 40 functions against a real SNS, that will take ages because for SNS, you need to set up like something that will listen to these messages and things like that. Uh, so my test shoot will would run for like hours or something like that. So instead of doing that, what we do is using uh, ports and adapters or hexagonal architecture uh, to write our code in a way that we can just basically split everything into different uh, ports and adapters. Uh, and then we can basically test our business logic against different adapter. Uh, so before we do that, we should probably explain ports and adapters and hexagonal architecture because some of the people that are listening yeah. to the show will not be uh, will not know about that. So basically, it's a simple architecture that, uh, that looks similar to some other architectures called, for example, clean architecture and a few others. But the, the idea be behind it is simple. Uh, it allows your application to be run and tested uh, in isolation uh, of its uh, eventual environment. So basically, your function can be run as a um, local function, and it can talk to some different, uh, and 
each of your functions. So your business logic exposes some ports. Let's say that I have a function that uh, receives some messages from Slack and then uh, posts some uh, other message to SNS and saves some data to a database. Instead of connecting to real Slack to get the message to, uh, to listen to these uh, messages directly from Slack and posting directly to SNS and saving directly to DynamoDB, I want to have three different ports in my code. The first port will be event port that will be able to listen to some different uh, events. Uh, and I will have a different adapter uh, for different things. I will have an uh, adapter for Slack that will work in production. But for local testing, I will have some kind of local adapter that I can trigger from my command line or something else. Then for posting a message on SNS, instead of posting a message directly to SNS, I will have a port for that that will have some interface such as message.post or something like that. And I, I will have adapter for SNS for production and different adapters for local testing, maybe just uh, sending a JavaScript event or something like that. And again, for the database, uh, something will assume that uh, data will be stored to a database with some uh, method of uh, database adapter. And then uh, database adapter can be DynamoDB adapter that will save the data to DynamoDB or MongoDB adapter maybe, or just in-memory database adapter that will save some data in memory and allow us to test everything. All right, so that was just a ton of information. Yeah. So let's break let's break it down a little bit, right? So we start with let's start with the um, the idea of the um, the ports, right? So when we're building those applications uh, or we're building some bit of business logic, uh, obviously it needs to interact with some something else. It needs to connect to the database, like you said. It might need to send a message. It might need to receive a message. Um, the problem is, is that if we build that functionality directly in there uh, and say, you know, maybe we include the AWS SDK with the DynamoDB, um, you know, with the DynamoDB service in there, uh, and the the function is supposed to query the database, grab some data, and then maybe send it off to SNS. If it does all of that in that one function, um, you're married in a sense to those services, uh, and you can't—they're not easily testable. That's basically what you're saying, right? So yes. the idea of these these ports are to say that we're going to include sort of like a almost like a generic library, maybe like dependency injection. Is that an, another way to sort of think of it? Yeah, something like that. But it's called port and, uh, ports and adapters uh, for a good reason. Whenever you are traveling, for example, if you travel to Europe, uh, you want to charge your laptop or your phone. And here in Europe, we have different uh, power plugs uh, plugs uh, for, for the wall. So you're not able just to plug in your computer in a wall and uh, in the, your hotel room and charge it. Instead, uh, you will need a different uh, cable to do that. But you don't want to buy a new cable every time you travel to different countries because you will end up with a lot of different cables and it's really expensive and uh, non-scalable way to travel. Instead, you have a small adapter that will just convert your uh, power plug to something that that is compatible with the uh, power socket in your uh, hotel room. And that will be small enough that you can carry in your pocket or wherever you want. And it's really cheap. Instead of just buying the cable that will cost you more than $100, this will cost you like $2 or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's the same with your code. Basically, your business logic doesn't really care uh, what's your database. You want to save some user or Let's say that inside uh, our vacation tracker, we want to save vacation requests. Why would my code uh, even know about like my database? It will it it want to save uh, that vacation request or leave request somewhere, and that needs to be saved in some database. But 
it doesn't really matter for my code if that database is DynamoDB or I don't know what, maybe MongoDB or something else, as long as that's saved and can be read from uh, from the database, that's it. Right, and that's what you, and, and that's this idea, like you said, this message.post exactly. um, or the interface. So you would build, um, your adapter essentially would be a, um, sort of like in, in the case of a database, like a data a data access layer, or how we would maybe think of it that way, where um, you know DynamoDB might have get item or put item or something like that, but you would genericize that and, and expose an interface that says item.get or, or you know, db.get, db.save uh, or something. Exactly. And then your individual functions can plug into that. And then that way, later on, you could actually, uh, you could change that and your your business logic or your code wouldn't have to change. You would just have to make sure that you had a uh, compatible interface uh, that you could swap out for or compatible, I should say, compatible adapter with the same interface that you could swap out um, uh, later on down the road. Exactly. So in our code, uh, everything looks much more cleaner now because we have some uh, lambda.js file or lambda.ts file if you're using TypeScript, which... Uh, its responsibility is basically to require those different uh, adapters or repositories, how we call them, for example, DynamoDB repository, to create instances of these repositories and pass them to our main JS or main TS function, which is basically our business logic. And inside that function, main uh, function that is business logic, uh, we don't require any other repositories and things like that. We get all of them through like uh, arguments and we just use them. We, we assume that whenever we have notification, we assume that that notification library that we got will have notification.send uh, method that will just send that, uh, some text as a message to some topic or whatever. Basically, uh, that helps us to like uh, move away our business logic from integrations and everything. And uh, on the other side, it also helps us to, to write the tests and everything because uh, as I said, we have a lot of functions that are doing similar things like sending messages to SNS or something like that. So instead of uh, testing each function against that, we can now like have integration and log the unit tests for that SNS adapt, uh, repository that are, that is posting to real SNS and test that again, SNS topic and see that that works. And then in our business logic, instead of uh, SNS repository, we can send different notification repository, which can be like local uh, notification, just JavaScript event or something like that. And we, we can just test against that because that's much faster. And it's still integration between your business logic and some adapter. Yeah, and that, and actually, that's a, I think that's a really good point about the uh, unit testing too, because especially if you're doing mocking and you're trying to do some of those things, um, you're always overriding or you're stubbing uh, API calls and things like that, um, and that just gets a little bit complex and kind of messy. And it's easier to, or I think it would be easier uh, using this style of of uh, architecture to just swap it out so that when your function calls that, you've already got that sort of. Uh, set up to to send back the right messages based off of you know the the different inputs that it sends. So that that seems like a really smart thing to do. And then the the thing about the SNS topic or like you're doing this cloud integration piece, um, that's another thing where if you're if you don't want to test this probably in production, right? You want to test this in some sort of staging environment. But if you're even trying to do integration tests for individual functions 
um, or isolated business logic, um, you could just change your adapter so that that's using a cloud resource, but it's just using some test resource so that it doesn't, you know, doesn't mess up anything else in your production environment. Exactly. So uh, I think the, the best example for that uh, was uh, a few weeks ago on a Twitch uh, series uh, that eight or less did for like uh, building serverless, uh, built on serverless or something mm -hmm. like that. He was showcasing like uh, with different people how, how to build like real world uh, application on uh, serverless. And uh, I think you you was uh, uh, you uh, you helped him with uh, unit tests and I was uh, on there. Then, yes. Yeah. <laughs> then after that, I was working with him on integration tests, and we actually did this uh, exactly in the way that you mentioned. So we didn't want to spin up a new environment every time we want to run integration tests because we want people to be able to run the, their integration tests on their uh, when they are doing development on one function or something like that. So whenever you are doing new development, you run your unit tests, you check your integration tests, and after that, you push your code to uh, somewhere where uh, some something will do end-to-end -end tests uh, before it goes to production. But with integration tests, let's say you, we want to test some uh, DynamoDB table. Uh, basically, what we want to test in integration tests is that uh, our code will work fine with DynamoDB table because with unit tests, you can just assume that uh, everything you send to uh, DynamoDB table will be saved, but maybe you're using attribute that uh, is called status or something like that, some reserve world. A word and then it will fail with the real uh, DynamoDB table. So what we did uh, was creating a DynamoDB uh, table just for tests on, on the beginning of the test suite, then running tests against that uh, new uh, DynamoDB table. And then when all tests are finished, then we just destroy that table. So we don't need to deploy all the environment and things like that. We just want inside the code to create some temporary table, test against that, and uh, kill it in the end. And that's it for integration tests. That's great. All right, so maybe this would be helpful if we could give some examples um, of like how, like why would this be beneficial? Like how has it benefited you? Um, and uh, I know you have a story about MongoDB in there that maybe you could share. Yeah. So yeah, the the first thing would uh, we we already mentioned thing with SNS and uh, the issue with testing SNS uh, posting to SNS is uh, not with posting the message that's really fast and I would be able to post as many messages as I want, but the, the issue is actually validating if that message was posted. So if we want to validate that. Uh, then I need to have a Lambda function or maybe SQS that is subscribed to that SNS topic so I can see if something was posted to that SNS uh, topic. So that's uh, that takes a lot of time to set up and it's a complex thing to set up so I don't want to test that in each of my functions. But the other thing that you men just mentioned is uh, with MongoDB and DynamoDB. When we started our product, uh, the early version used uh, MongoDB and some Express uh, application for part of the app and the rest of it was serverless. And we slowly migrated from, uh, first we removed uh, Express and then we, we tried to remove uh, MongoDB. And we still have some parts of the application that are talking to some uh, MongoDB, but most of it is now on DynamoDB. But, uh, uh, it took us a lot of time to migrate everything because of like writing everything and testing uh, databases itself. But when we had uh, different repositories for DynamoDB and uh, MongoDB with the same interface, 
So whenever we wanted to save, uh, save uh, leave request, we had db.save leave request that, uh, uh, that got the same params and returned the same value in the end. Uh, we were able just to swap uh, these two things. Uh, we went to our Lambda.js files, and instead of requiring MongoDB, we just required DynamoDB uh, repository, and our business logic just worked because we didn't change the business logic itself. We just changed the repositories in the end. So we 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 were basically able to swap the databases for a lot of things without like uh, changing our business logic. Awesome. And so, just question too, in terms of how um, how specific you would get with some of these commands. So I like to take uh, with DynamoDB, for example. I like to basically take every access pattern, which might be get users or get users by X Y Z. I like to write a, sp a specific function for each one of those. Um, is that something that you you would do as well? Would you get very specific? Yes, we, we do the same. Uh, the only issue that we found with that approach is that after some time, you have a lot of different small functions that are talking to your database. Mm -hmm. So basically, we were using classes, uh, some kind of class that uh, that is talking to, let's say, DynamoDB. But we have a base class. And then on top of that, we have a few different classes that are extending that and providing interface to do, for example, things related to leaves or things related to users and things like that. Because otherwise, we were in the situation that we had so many functions and it was really hard for you to like, see if the, the thing that you want to do already exists or not inside your code yeah. base. So yeah, <laughs> that's tricky. Yeah, I've run, I've, I've run into that yeah. as well. So, um, all right. So, what about um, uh, you have an, a, an example too with um, with vacation tracker? So, you use Slack right now, but that's something with this architecture be really flexible if you wanted to migrate to something besides Slack, or you wanted to add more services too, right? Exactly. We we started with Slack because that was the way for us to validate the MVP, and now we have like. Uh, more than 200 teams paying for our product. So we kind of validated the, the idea. We know that people are ready to pay for this kind of product. And uh, in the past few weeks, we were getting more and more questions related to Microsoft Teams because it seems that Microsoft Teams is like uh, getting more and more popular now. So one of the things that this architecture uh, will allow us to do, and we're actually considering uh, doing that in the next few like weeks, is to extending our product not to work just with Slack, but to work with Slack and Microsoft Teams. Because uh, with this approach, we we have uh, interfaces such as like post messages, Slack uh, post, uh, not not even post messages Slack, but post, uh, for example, request to to that communication channel. And our communication channel can be Slack or we can basically add another communication channel that is different in the end. So we, we need different repository and different adapter, but the port is the same for our business logic that just like posting the request somewhere into someone's chat. And that chat can be Microsoft Teams or who knows, maybe in future some different things. Uh, we even have web applications. So it's like, it doesn't matter for my business logic where that uh, request is going, but uh, adapters are there to like, Post that message to different channels and things like that. Yeah, because all that logic is hidden. All that logic is hidden inside those adapters, and, exactly. and like you said, your business logic doesn't care. Um, you know, and you can you can split that adapter. You could probably even put an adapter on an adapter exactly. in the sense where yeah. you might have you know write to one adapter that then decides maybe based on who the client is whether it's going to go to Slack or whether it's going to go. We're exactly to, doing that actually yeah. because each adapter is basically using hexagonal architecture. Uh, 
in its own. So uh, whenever I want to test different functions inside the adapter, I'm still applying the same principles as I do for my uh, business logic. So if you want to test your posting messages to a database and you just want to test if, uh, I don't know, uh, to do a unit test of that, uh, you don't want to check that against a real DynamoDB, uh, then again, you can pass different like small mini adapters inside and check if, if you'll get the response with the right format and things like that. It's especially important for, for example, Slack, because uh, most of the time you just need to send some kind of JSON and on the other side, Slack will just show something. Uh, and it's really hard for us to do integration tests for that. We can do some end-to-end -end tests, but not integration tests. So mm -hmm. it's really important for us to be able to just read that JSON and validate against I don't know, different things, their uh, documentation or something. Yeah, and I and I think the the other thing that this does too, and and I and I'm I'm hoping that we are moving past the, uh, uh, may, I'll call it a fallacy of vendor lock-in, right? <laughs> but um, I, I do think it's kind of important because the other piece of this uh, is data lock-in too, right? Sort of like once yeah. you choose a database technology and you write all these applications that interface with that that uh, you know, let's say you start with MySQL. Uh, and then all of a sudden you realize, hey, MySQL doesn't scale when you get to uh, you know cloud uh, sort of cloud scale. Yeah, it's even with uh, it's even with your programming language. Imagine that you started your application uh, with, for example, Java or something like that, and then you realize that uh, your call starts are too uh, too big or something like that. So you want to move to Node.js or Go, where call starts basically don't exist anymore. So you're locked in with your language. Uh, not just with uh, or with your framework or with many other things. Our Express.js application right. was uh, some kind of lock-in. So lock-in is kind of real, but cloud lock-in is basically not that real because uh, I never heard about like company that moved from one cloud vendor to another unless they they had some really specific use case and a lot of long history of uh, bad decisions and things like that. And yeah. I, or maybe, or maybe like a startup, a startup credit or something. Exactly, is the reason why that, um, people move. I don't think yeah. startups. Uh, so even if you have a lot of credits or things like that, that will not help you if you need to rewrite your application because development time is much right. more expensive than like your infrastructure. Right. So maybe that that might be a great way to end this. Is sort of like what's your what's your advice? I mean, like start early, you know, or or think about testing right from the beginning. And and what's your what's your advice? Definitely, you should start uh, thinking about testing early because if you if you start uh, thinking about testing uh, at the moment when you have some issues and things like that, it will take you a lot of time to optimize your application and be able to test everything. Most of the time, people are like uh, trying to find a complex way to test their code without like changing their their code. Uh, uh, so you want to keep your code the same as it was and just uh, find a really complex ways to test it with different mocks uh, and stopping libraries and things like that. But my approach is uh, completely different. Uh, I always want to change my code a bit to allow myself uh, to, to write tests easier because that will help me in future to just move to, let, let's say, migrate to other things, not really to other cloud provider, but to migrate to, for example, from one database to another, or even more important, my uh, my application is growing, so sometimes I just want to uh, switch to another version of uh, an, another service service that we are building or things like that. So basically, it's okay to change your code a bit to uh, help your uh, yourself and your team to write easier tests and to be sure that you can check that your code is working in a way that it should.
Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Slobodan, for for joining me and sharing all this uh, complex knowledge about uh, hexagonal architectures because it's uh, it's definitely something that uh, I think people should learn and 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 definitely approach. So, why don't you tell the listeners how they can find out about you? And you have a ton of things going on, so you know, feel free. Tell us all about how we can get in touch with you and and, and these other things you're working on. Uh, yeah. Uh, so you mentioned complex uh, complex knowledge. It's like complex things about simple things because hexagonal architecture uh, is quite simple in the <laughs> basic of it. It's really simple. And then we, we add a layer of complexity around everything, of course. <laughs> so uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, of course, people can find me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, Slobodan underscore. I'm tweeting a lot about like serverless and things like that. And we're also organizing actually a serverless days Belgrade conference in September. So uh, if you, if anyone of, of your listeners want to come to Belgrade, uh, Serbia in September, weather will be really nice, and we have nice lineup of uh, people. Uh, you can check that on serverlessbelgrade.com. And beside that, you can check Vacation Tracker, our awesome startup at vacationtracker.io, uh, or my other company, Cloud Horizon at cloudhorizon.com. And yeah, I should probably mention Claudia.js, which is uh, claudia.js.com, which is still one of the best uh, frameworks for beginners because it's not a real framework. It's just a deployment library. For complex applications, you should probably use something more complex such as AWS SAM or uh, now uh, CDK or, of course, serverless framework and things like that. And I also mentioned the the book that I wrote with uh, my friend Alexander Simovic. the book is called Serverless Applications with Node.js, and uh, we actually have uh, five uh, free ebook copies that uh, we can give away to your listeners. Uh, and finally, you can read more about uh, hexagonal architecture and many other things on serverless.pub website, where I write some things with uh, Alexander and uh, Gojko Ajic. And there are a lot of great uh, articles written by uh, two of them on that website. So feel free to visit it. Awesome. So we appreciate those those uh, those codes, by the way. So I think what we'll do is uh, I'll share this in a tweet. But if you if you share the the podcast or maybe go and leave a review on iTunes or something like that, we'll we'll enter people in and and uh, uh, and give away some of these codes so that they can read uh, they can read your book. Yes. All right. Awesome. So thank you so much for being here. I will get all of this stuff into the show notes too, so that uh, uh, you know there's there's a lot there's a lot to take in here. Thanks for having me in this awesome podcast. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Slobodan Stojanovic for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 10. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe to the podcast using your favorite app like iTunes and Stitcher. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.